the fourth surprise. Uh, despite what your bulletin says, I am not preaching today. Uh, the, and I, I didn't introduce uh, Dr. Dave, the other Dr. Dave earlier, the original Reverend Dorst. There's three of them over there. So we're going to go to the second one now. Uh, today, uh, Reverend Jonathan Dorst is going to preach. Six and a half years ago, he preached for Dave's ordination service, so we invited him to come back and preach this time today. Graciously, he agreed to preach the sermon and text that was already planned for today, so we didn't have to change the schedule or anything. Jonathan is a graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, and he's been a pastor and a church planner, and today he is the executive pastor of River Oaks Presbyterian Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So he's come a long ways. Uh, Jonathan, welcome back to the pulpit of Potomac Hills. Thank you, Dave. It is a profound privilege to be here again. I love this church. Like Dave said, I've preached here before. I've gone on mission trips with this church. It's almost like a second home for me, and it's a privilege to be here also to join with you in honoring my brother. Um, if you've ever wondered, yes, I am the evil twin. <laughs> and uh, he's really, you got the good one. So congratulations to you. Um, he, I really look up to him. He really is a great man. Um, I look up to him even though I'm an inch taller. And uh, it's interesting, my, my parents named us David and Jonathan, like David and Jonathan in the Bible, so that we would be best friends. And, uh, and that is a blessing because I can truly say he is my best friend. But it's also kind of a curse because I keep trying to make a new best friend and nobody measures up to Dave Dorst. So I guess I'm stuck, uh, that whole naming thing, I'm stuck, but uh, I appreciate you having me here. I apologize for my voice, it's a little hoarse, I had a karaoke-related incident Friday night, <laughs> and uh, so I'm recovering, and, uh, but thankfully we have a short sermon text um, for me to read, that doesn't mean the sermon is going to be short necessarily, but we'll see. Um, so why don't we stand for this reading of God's word? It is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 2. It says this. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's pray. Lord God, we hardly know what we are doing when we come to worship that we are coming into the throne room of the Almighty. But we come not as aliens, but as friends. You brought us close through the work of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make Jesus the focus of our worship today. That, uh, that you would open our eyes to the truths found in your word given through the word, and that you would help us to, to apply these truths to our lives. 
And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as some of you know, I recently went through a job change. I had started a church in a great college town in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and I was the pastor there for 11 years, and then I felt like after 11 years, felt like it was time to move on and turn the the church plant over to another pastor, which we were able to do. But um, when I started looking for a a new call, looking at new different jobs, uh, we sort of threw the, the search pretty wide open. So we were looking at all over the place, like Boston and Ohio and Colorado and Austin, Texas, and all these churches. And, and uh, some of them, there are jobs. Some places, we just thought, hey, that'd be great to live. We'll see if there's a job there. But every time something would pop up, my wife would always get online and do a whole bunch of research, even before I even applied. Because she wanted to know about two things, right? You can probably guess, moms. Schools, what are the schools like in the area? And then housing, right? What's, what's the housing like in the area? And we learned a lot about school districts and housing. And uh, even though we only moved an hour away, we ended up moving to Tulsa. Um, and so we learned, wow, different places have different housing prices. I guess we knew that from Northern Virginia. But bought our house in Tulsa for a little over $200,000. The same, pretty much the same house that we live in is listed on Zillow in Santa Monica, California for $3.5 million. That was after they lowered the price, $497,000. So they lowered the price more than double what we paid for our house. What, What are the three rules of real estate? Location, 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 right? Well, I want to submit this morning that the first rule, and maybe the second and third rule, of biblical interpretation of learning to understand the Bible is context. Context, context, context. As, as you are getting, as we are getting into this series on the Ten Commandments, it is important, it is vital that we look at the context for how these Ten Commandments were originally received by those who received them, the Israelites, back thousands of years ago. And the, the context behind the Ten Commandments is slavery. Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years when they got these commandments. Now think about that for just a moment. Think about what being a slave for that long would do. Because slavery, in its essence, is inhumane treatment, right? It is making someone feel less than human, right? When the Hebrews, when they made the bricks to build the pyramids and the buildings in Egypt, they weren't given a choice, right? They simply were told to work, and then they could stop and refuel. And they were like pack mules, work, Stop and refuel. Work, stop, and that's no way to live, right? And they were being told, what you're doing is not for you. You are not valuable except to provide for others. They weren't probably a lot of times felt, felt loved or part of real human community. They were having their dignity as people and honor taken away as slaves. And yet these slaves cried out to God, 
to deliver them from slavery. And God, in his wisdom and his providence, sent someone to take them out of slavery. He sent Moses to bring them out of Egypt and to bring them into the wilderness until the time when they could go and take the land that God was preparing for them, the promised land. But their behavior in the wilderness, I know that you went through the book of Exodus, if you've been here a while, I think just last year, the pastors here preached through Exodus, and you probably, this probably stood out, right? Because the behavior, their behavior in the wilderness tells us a lot about the slave mentality. Because every time things got hard out there in the wilderness, they would say what? Let's go back to Egypt, right? At least we had food there. At least we had a routine. At least we knew our place, right? At least we could survive. Because if you've been a slave for long enough, all you know how to do is survive, right? You know obedience and you know consequences. You don't know the way of freedom. And so God is having to teach his people how to live again, how to be human. And he's teaching them how to order their lives and live together in a meaningful and a peaceful way. Right? Because without laws, we can't have society, right? If you've read Lord of the Flies, you know a society with no laws really devolves into unrestrained human cruelty. But not only was God teaching them how to live together, he had to change them how, to, how they saw themselves. Right? As one writer writes, he says, the Ten Commandments are the long process of teaching the people how to be human again. These commands are vital truths about what it means to live in authentic human community. And it starts with God's words here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt or out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. We call this the prologue to the Ten Commandments. It's kind of an introduction. And yet, it's vital that this prologue be connected with the Ten Commandments. A lot of people just skip over. When they think of the Ten Commandments, they just think, well, let's start with the beginning. The beginning is what? The first commandment, you shall have no other gods. You can't do that. You can't skip over the prologue because it is vitally important to understand how the rest of the Ten Commandments apply to you. And it's vital to know about how we are to be human and to live with God. And so I want to look at three things that the prologue tells us about God, but then by implication by about us. It tells us that God, number one, is a personal God. Number two, God is a freeing God. And number three, God is a providential God. God is personal, he's freeing, and he's providential. And of course, what he says here in the prologue starts out with a great statement. I am the Lord, your God. Now, it's interesting and kind of funny how many times God has to reintroduce himself to his people in the wilderness, right? It's funny because it's not like they've forgotten, right? I mean, we forget people as, as, as a pastor. Sometimes I... When a new person comes, I have to meet them three or four times at least to remember their names, and it's embarrassing. But how do you forget God? 
right? Especially these guys, right? He speaks from heaven. He speaks through a burning bush. He speaks in the mountain, and the mountain quakes. You remember when you meet that God. Just like any of us that are over 20 years old, we remember where we were when 9-11 hit, right? So it is with God. You remember when you met the God of the universe. And yet God has a purpose in reminding the people who he is. Because his purpose, one of his purposes is to give the law here personal ground, the personal grounding it needs, right? Because morality that is impersonal really loses its power to motivate people, doesn't it? I mean, it, because it's just words. There's ideas behind the words, but whose ideas, right? At the end of the day, law comes down to authority. Who says, I have to do that, right? Every parent knows this because every two-year-old learns two words, right? No and why? I want you to sit up. Why? Because you need to eat your dinner. Why? Because I want you to be healthy. Why? Because I love you. Why? And you can keep giving reasons, but ultimately it comes down to because I said so. I'm the authority, right? And Judeo-Christian morality doesn't hinge on an arbitrary set of rules. It is it has an ultimate authority behind it. And in fact, we're, we're going to see as we study these commandments, they all flow out of the person, the character of God himself, who he is, and then who he has made us to be. And we see the personal relationship here because God says, I am the Lord your God, which is an implication that he is what? Our God. He is not just the Lord God who says these things and you must obey. He is the Lord your God who is with you and in relationship with you. Some, well, why should I get, be a good person? Some, some people might say, well, you know, it's, your life will go better if it does. Or you have some vague moral obligation to be good. But the Christian says, what? Because God. I'm going to be good. I'm going to obey and do what is right because God. There are a lot of proximate, secondary reasons, but ultimately because be a good person because God has created you for goodness, and he is good. So God is a personal God, and he's telling us that. But God is also a freeing God, right? We, we, the second half of the prologue is very specific, about what Israel's God has done in history. He reminds them, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The law starts with freedom. I don't want, want, let me say that again. The law starts with freedom. And this is critically important that you get the order because the order of the prologue and the Ten Commandments, it's the same order that you find throughout Scripture. It's what, you have first the gospel, you have been saved, you are free, and then the law. 
Theologians talk about it like this. They say you always have the indicative before the imperative, right? If you remember back to high school English or maybe Spanish, uh, if you were learning a different language, you know that the indicative, it, it really talks about um, a person's state or their status, who they are, what is. That's the indicative, your identity. And then the imperative is what you are to do, what you should do. And the, the indicative, who we are, always comes before the imperative, what we ought to do. Again, in other words, we don't keep the rules and do our work in order to gain status with God. We are saved, we are freed, we have status, and then we are called to live out of that. In the Bible, our status identity is secure apart from our works. And you see this in basically all of Paul's letters, right? When he writes Philippians and Ephesians, he spends all this time reminding these believers who they are in Christ, who they are, who is God has saved them to be. You're a new creation. You've been predestined. You've been loved. You've been given all the riches of Christ. And then about halfway through, he says what? Therefore, because of who you are, therefore, live this way. Walk worthy of your calling. And again, that, that Order is critically important because if you don't get it right, you either, either end up giving yourself credit for working to earn your status and your salvation, or you end up in despair if you don't do enough work and you don't know what your status is. But healthy Christian living always starts with and goes back to what is my identity in God? Who am I in God? And goes from there. And when you do good, you don't end up in pride because you realize God is the one who freed me to work. And when you don't do good, uh, you don't end up in despair because you recognize I am still loved and freed by this God. Now, a lot of people think there's, there's a difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of people say, well, in the Old Testament... The, they were saved. Those people were saved by keeping the law, right? And in the New Testament, we are saved by having faith. We're saved by grace. And the prologue to the Ten Commandments shouts, no, that's not true. It was never true. You were always, and it was always God's plan to free his people and to save them by grace first, and then to live out of that. Now, there, there's been a fairly big fight uh, the last 15 or 20 years, longer probably, over in our country over the posting of Ten Commandments, right? Whether we should have them in front of courtrooms and in schools and uh, government buildings, right? Because that was the normal practice. And I'm all for having Scripture inform how we do life in, in the world, in our culture, right? But here's my problem with the posting of the Ten Commandments is that they usually leave out the prologue, don't they? S sometimes they put, I'm the Lord thy God, but then they jump right to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. They leave out the good news. They leave out 
Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, of the house of slavery, right? And then they jump ahead. And my problem with that is that the law without the gospel is death. If you just post the rules without a reminder of God's love and relationship, that's just moralism, right? Earn your way, and the end of moralism is death. Context. We need the whole context for understanding the law, right? We need the context for understanding God's words. But you might say, well, pastor, what about our context, (laughs) right? I mean, I've never lived in Egypt. I'm assuming none of you have lived in Egypt. I know you've never lived under a pharaoh in slavery in Egypt, right? So this isn't me, right? I've never been brought out of the house of slavery. I don't fit this context, do I? Ah, but you do. Maybe in a different way. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, he's talking about all of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is Paul describing? He's describing slavery. He is saying that in our sinful nature, we were slaves. We were slaves to our passions. We were slaves to the course of what everyone else in the world wanted to do. We were slaves to the prince of darkness who, was ma- who had made us disobedient. We were children of wrath. And he says we need a savior. And the New Testament drops all these clues along the way in the Gospels until it just flat out tells us who that Savior is. Right? There's all these clues that there's a new Redeemer, a new Deliverer, right? Because Moses, when he was born, the Pharaoh put out a decree to kill all the baby boys two and under, right? Jesus... When he was born, King Herod sent out a decree to kill all the baby boys to and under, right? Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness getting ready to lead his people. I don't think it's a coincidence. Jesus spent 40 days in the desert getting ready to begin his ministry. Moses was given the law on a mountain. Jesus taught the full extent of the law also on a mount. Moses prayed, and bread came from heaven. Jesus prayed, and bread multiplied for the people. The meal that Jesus ate with his disciples, there's no accident. What meal was it? It was the Passover meal that commemorated Moses leading the people out of Egypt, right? Commemorated the angel of death passing over the Israelites on their way to destroy the firstborn of the Egyptians. And Jesus takes the cup, which was to commemorate the blood 
that was spilled that night. And he makes a shocking announcement to his disciples. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The cup that had represented the blood of the lamb that was slain to protect and save Israel. He's saying, the new covenant is in me. In other words, he's saying, I am the new and greater Moses. I am the new and greater redeemer and savior. He's saying that he was going to be slain so his people could be free. Friends, that is the ultimate freedom, right, that the words in the prologue point to. Because in some ways, God's deliverance and freedom for Israel was a little temporary, right? They would be conquered again. They would become basically slaves again. But the freedom that Jesus gives is a permanent freedom. It's freedom from sin, the curse of sin and death, right? His death paid the penalty for your sins. And so in Jesus, you are no longer a slave to your sins. You no longer have to fear death. You are free. This God that freed his people in Egypt frees you as well. So he is a personal God, a freeing God, but he is also a providential God. Now, again, God tells his people, I brought you out of Egypt. And what is their response so often? Yeah, but you brought us out of here to die. You brought... you. You brought us out here to abandon us, didn't you, God? What do we know? Of course not. He did not bring them out to abandon them. Uh, What God started, he's going to finish. In fact, he makes this clear in the fourth commandment. It may be not super clear here in the prologue, but in the fourth commandment, he says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving to you. Right? He was giving them a land. He was taking them there. Uh, Tremper Longman, he writes about this really well. He says, the greatest act of salvation history in the Old Testament was not the Exodus alone. The Exodus was just one half of a great redemptive plan. God had not promised his people only that he would redeem them from bondage, but also that he would give them the land he promised to the fathers as their inheritance. In other words, the Israelites had been saved. might even call that justification. But they were being saved, right? In New Testament terms, they were being sanctified and glorified. And the promised land is a picture of that glorification. And God is telling that he will finish the work. He will take them to the land. He is not about, he's not brought them out of Egypt to abandon them, but to bring them all the way. That is a picture of what we call providence. The idea that God works all things to the glory of his will, right? God is in every part of our lives and all of the circumstances. Now, there's a phrase that I've heard a lot in Oklahoma. I don't know if you guys say, if Christians say it here in, in Virginia, but it's this phrase, it's a God thing. Right? And, and when do, I always hear that when something really good or kind of semi-miraculous has happened, right? A child was healed or mom was healed in a way that the doctor couldn't fully understand, 
right? Or you got this job offer the day before you were going to quit your job, right? Or even I got a parking spot right next to the door, right? It's a God thing. It is, and it's always something good, really awesome. But here's the thing. For a Christian, everything is a God thing. It's a God thing when they don't get healed. It is a God thing when you don't get that job and have to wander in the wilderness for a little bit. God is working through all the circumstances of your lives, in the good and bad. He doesn't cause evil, but he works in and through it, right? He works all things for good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And see, the problem is that we, we short-circuit that, I think, when we think about how God works in our lives, right? When we think, well, yeah, he, he saved me at the beginning, right? We kind of get the prologue. We like that. It's a God thing. But then getting us to the promised land, we often think, how do we get there? We got to keep the law. We got to do it ourselves, Right? And God's just judging us on how well we keep the law. It's kind of the saving Private Ryan Christianity, right? Where Private Ryan, he has all these people that die for him. And the last guy who's dying says, earn this. Right? We feel like we have to earn this. Yes, he died for me, but I got to do it all now and work and earn that salvation. I'll tell you a story. Um, David Ireland, I think it really illustrates this so well. David Ireland was a, a writer, but who, who developed this neurological disease when he was in his teens. And confined him to a wheelchair. And he was able to uh, still complete college, and he was even able to get married. And uh, when his wife got pregnant, he realized he didn't know if he was going to uh, be able to to live long enough to really see his, his son. And so he wrote a book. It's called Letters to an Unborn Child. Listen to what he says. So this is the kind of woman your mother is. When we go on a date, she puts me in the bathtub. She brushes my teeth. She dresses me. She puts me in the wheelchair. She puts the pedal stools on the chair uh, so I can rest my legs. She pushes me down the steps out to the car. She pulls me out of the wheelchair, she puts me into the car, she closes the door. She puts my wheelchair in the trunk, she closes the trunk and raises the garage door. This is in the 60s when you still had to manually open and close your garage, right? She backs out of the garage, she pulls the garage door back down, she drives me to the restaurant. She gets to the restaurant, she goes to the trunk, she gets the wheelchair out of the trunk, she pulls it up to the side of the car, she puts me in the wheelchair, she closes the door, she closes the trunk. She pushes me into the restaurant. She pushes me up to the table. She puts me in a chair at the table so I'll be more comfortable and people won't be as prone to stare. She feeds me. She wipes my chin. She pays for the meal. She puts me back in the wheelchair. She pushes me back to the car. She puts me in the car. She puts the wheelchair back in the trunk. She drives us home. She raises the garage door, pulls into the garage. She takes the wheelchair out of the trunk. She puts me in the chair. She closes the trunk, closes the garage door. She takes my clothes off, puts me in... Put, Puts me in my pajamas, brushes my teeth. She puts me in bed, kisses me on the cheek, and says, Thank you for taking me out to dinner. That's the gospel. 
that is how union with Christ works. That is how relationship with Christ works. Right? That's what being in a relationship with Jesus is all about. God gives you a new heart, and he gives you the power to believe. And then he gives you the power to obey and the ability to love people. And he walks with you, in you, and behind and before you all the way home through every trial and every valley. And the prologue teaches us that. We're not alone. We were never alone. The law of God is not about how to earn our way to him, but how to walk with him as new creations in Christ. And uh, if I can just give a quick postscript uh, for the occasion, Dave, you've, you have set a new record uh, for Dorst Pastor's duration at a church. Uh, I've only made it 11 years at the same church. Your father's only made it 11 years, even though he's been in ministry 45. You've made it 15, and that is wonderful. I'm glad we're celebrating that. I know you've worked hard. I know that you've served God's people well. But there's also a danger in being at the same place for a long time, right? Becoming part of the institution. And the danger is, I think, going on autopilot, right? I know how this works. I know how to do this. I've seen this situation before. And we, and we start to depend an experience is great, but we start to depend on that experience. We start to depend on our abilities. And we stop trusting God. We, we stop remembering that it is not by might or power or experience or savvy that God works, but it is through his spirit. It's through his work. Actually, I was done. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled and grateful and really don't know why you chose to love us who were by nature in rebellion against you. And yet you did. You have freed us. You have given us all the riches of Christ Jesus, called us to walk in it, Father, may you teach us how to live in that freedom. Remind us that the law is good. It is an expression of your character, and it is what we need. It is a light to our path. And oh, how we should love the law and savor it like the, the sweetest drink and the choicest food because we only can live the law through your power. And we are only removed from the curse of law and can see it as a friend because Jesus took the curse on himself. And so help us to live in him as we walk through this world in your providence and your goodness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.